0: Paramhansa Yogananda, a Biography by Swami Kriyananda, a Talk by Asha Praver, Class 1, February 14, 2012, Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Okay, everyone, welcome. Um, We are resuming our Tuesday night series, and some people have asked if we're ever gonna go back and finish the Spiritual Warrior series, and we will, but I got interested in the new biography, so we'll do that first. This is the book from the Indian edition. Um, It's pretty close to being exactly the same as the American edition, except that when Swami saw the type, he decided it was way too small. So they reset it and blew it up for the American edition, which is one of the reasons it's a little later. It was actually published in time for this class. It was actually in California by last week, but it didn't get all the way to Palo Alto. So they're shipping it down this week, so by next week we'll have it. So you all can buy it. Um, I'm not quite sure that I'll even actually enter into the book tonight, because I have a lot of things to say by way of introduction. But I'm what inspired me to... Use this book as a text, I mean, which was a fairly self-evident thing to do anyway. But when Swamiji finished this book and every time he would read from it, he would tend to read from chapter 17, which I have Xeroxed the first part of it for you. And it's called Yogananda's Salient Characteristics. And one of the times I was listening to a satsang when Swami was reading this before the publication of the book, it just, there's 32, I I wrote up that there were 30, but there's actually 32 points here. They were just so uh, such a, a perfect summary of what it is to be a devotee and to be a disciple that I realized that these alone were, the, were a very interesting subject for a class series and class discussion. So I'm not honestly sure what my commitment is to the rest of the book. Um, also because we have the other Spiritual Warrior series lurking that we have to go back to but at the very least, we'll do uh, however long it takes to go through the contents of chapter 17. And then after that, we can decide sort of what what comes next. I hope you don't mind. Um, I've reached this stage of my life where I just kind of, ta- as I was joking about leaving the balcony such a mess for the uh, costumes, everybody can look and enjoy it. I take advantage of my position to a certain extent here. <laughs> no one else could leave it for such a mess when there were people coming into the temple, but... I sort of could just declare that it was okay. So in my position, my singular position is the one giving the classes that I give, I can just sort of decide what I want to do. (laughs) So forgive me for that, but all right. So um, after this class is over, I'll pass out these Xeroxes, but by the time you all come to class next time, I'm sure you'll have copies of the book yourself. It seems unlikely that you won't be buying this book, so. But nonetheless, um, sort of as a beginning, um, I was reading my own promises about what we would talk about. Um, One of the things that this biography has helped create in my own consciousness, the consciousness of many people, um, and the biography isn't the only uh, cause of this, let me just say, I've been reflecting a lot. Because this biography was also paired in, in Swami's creative cycle with the book um, Yogananda for the World, what finally became Yogananda for the World, which started out being saving the legacy of Paramahansa Yogananda, which is a book all about um, the, well, I was going to use a really creative word, all about the legacy that Yogananda left, but really about the deeper purpose and the underlying reasons for Yogananda's incarnation and how we got here and why we're here. Um, and the two of them actually go together. When Swami Kriyananda was planning the, the launch of this book, which is a sort of a, a habit that we've gotten into because both in India and in Italy, it's, a, it's a, a common practice. You have a book, you have a big celebration, and you launch the book. In India, it also has more... Um, The sense of doing an arati or a puja or offering it up to God now that it's completed is also part of the story. So, when Swami was launching this book, the biography in India, there was the question about whether or not he also would launch at the same time Yogananda for the world. Most people did not want him to do it together, and I was actually part of that thinking, because this is a book purely about Yogananda himself. Yogananda for the World is about what his disciples have done with his work since then. And so it seemed to me that they would muddy the waters for each other and that it would be better to keep this one just straight. However, it's no accident that they have come out at the same time. And working with Yogananda for the World, as I was called upon to do, <clears throat> contemplating the implications of that book, this gives me a little trouble here, Reflecting on all that's happened between the disciples since Yogananda's passing, which I don't have to go into at great length here. um, And dealing with my own and other people's reluctance to deal with what has happened between the disciples since Yogananda's passing. I've had to think really deeply about what Yogananda's spiritual legacy actually is. and, And how you even relate to a master's life. Um, Most of us are disciples and we have a very personal relationship with Yogananda and it's very much about um, our own inner spiritual life. I have been uh, impressed by the fact which which all Yogananda devotees around the world have extracted out of the huge 400-page or 600-page biography of Steve Jobs, the one paragraph in which it says that he read autobiography of a yogi every year for 30 years of his life. And he kept it on his iPod, and some said it was the only book on his iPod. And, you know, this was big, big gossip among Yogananda's devotees, and, you know, really big event. And other people who read the whole biography didn't even notice that paragraph. But for us, it was like the whole book was about... Steve Jobs and Yogananda. And uh, I mean, I enjoyed it like everyone else enjoyed it. But it had another interesting effect on my mind, which was the realization of that w- disciples do not own the master. And even though we, in this, for example, in this um, ongoing um, difference of opinion with SRF about how Yogananda's legacy really ought to be expressed, and even what that legacy is, we can naturally begin to think that Swamiji uh, Kriyananda has the better understanding and that we, as an extension of Swami Kriyananda's work, are really um, standing in the right place in regard to Yogananda's work, and we've got it figured out. And Because in that dispute, there's a, a sense of, is it them or is it us? And so the us kind of gets a little bit bigger in our own minds. And then you find out that Steve Jobs, who is really, you know, arguably one of the most influential and innovative people of our time in a different sphere entirely. I'm not comparing him to Yogananda at all. I'm just talking about people, worldly people who do worldly things, although he's not, he wasn't entirely worldly by any means. Worldly in this sense means living primarily through the senses rather than through an inner reality. He certainly had an inner life. But the man lived a couple of miles from here. And at one point, he almost put one of his children into our summer camp. And I only mention that because he was perfectly aware of the fact that we were here and, to my knowledge, never set foot on the property. He probably could have walked over here in about 15 minutes from where he lived But Yogananda was never important enough for him to step into a temple dedicated to Yogananda. One of the largest temples dedicated to Yogananda on the whole planet was right in his own town and he never came over here. But nonetheless, Yogananda had a strong, uh, what you might say, entree into that man's consciousness. And who's to say, you know, where ideas come from? Because he certainly had an intuition and a, and a, a sense of where to take things in, in the sphere in which he was to which he was dedicated, that was way way beyond the common. Um, and you have uh, Yogananda's own statement. Well, he put it. He he was the one who put it into the mind of Harry Truman to defend um, South Korea from North Korea's incursions. That he felt it was important that communism had to be stopped. And so Yogananda inspired Harry Truman. I mean, I don't think Harry Truman had autobiography on his iPod I don't think he had an iPod but you know I don't think he'd heard of the book or was acting in any conscious way in relationship to him but he was obviously sufficiently elevated and honorable in his consciousness that Master could project a thought and Harry Truman would pick it up because Master could project a lot of thoughts and people would not pick them up at all Um, he, he could feel it enough But, you know, conversely, Master also said that it was the masters of India who inspired Hitler to open a second front in the Second World War. So I suppose you don't have to be in tune to be influenced somehow or another. I'm just betraying what I said just a minute ago. But somehow or another, even an evil man could be influenced by the masters in order for history, in order for karma to take its course. Because um, Hitler was more or less invincible, this is how it's been explained to me, he was not losing. But when he opened a second front and divided his forces, that was the the necessary military mistake, which was uncharacteristic of him, apparently, to make such a mistake. But because of that, he was sufficiently weakened that the allied forces were able to triumph over him. And Master said that it was the, the Himalayan yogis who put that thought into his mind. Now, Swamiji makes a very big point and he brings it up very often and he even asked Catherine Ka- Kaivari, Kairavi to write the book um, Two Souls, Four Lives, about the fact that Master was William the Conqueror. And Swamiji himself says, I mean, of all the past lives that Master's had, um, he mentioned Arjuna and he mentioned William the Conqueror. But in Autobiography of a Yogi, he says, when he visited Stonehenge, I lived here 3,200 years ago or 3,500 years ago. He could have told us who he was. He, he did mention that he was a Spanish king who helped drive the Moors out of Spain. And Swami Swamiji and others have sort of tracked that down to the Ferdinand the Saint, I think it was. Do I have it correct or Alfonso X? I forget which one was which. One was Swami and one was Master. It was Ferdinand. But in any case... Um, Master could have told us many more incarnations that he was, but he mentioned William the Conqueror and then even this Spanish king, I think primarily to help us from sort of getting this very possessive, tiny picture of who this man is and what he came to do. I mean, Swamiji himself, in his very um, strongly worded criticisms, of the disciples who have remained in the leadership positions of SRF of just reducing Master to this um, tiny little, Swami used the word saintlet, you know, just sort of bringing him down to this. And, you know, Swamiji once made a comment and he he said, I don't, I I rarely say this because I don't know how to say it exactly in a way that sounds right. He said, Master was adorable. That was the word. You know, he wasn't very tall and he was rather stocky and he was just Completely charming, and and he just had this. And and Swamiji talks in here about his extremely um, delightful sense of humor, and his just sort of way of going at life. That he he was just uh, so much fun to be around. Even though Swamiji came late in his life and was young in relation to him, even still, Swami would mention that. And then when you think back about, I'm thinking now about the SRF disciples who were with him for so many years, um, where I was reading in, in some, oh, oh, I know where it was, but it was a sort of a, a historical time of the 30s and 40s with Master. You know, when there were nine or 10 people at Mount Washington. And Master's work was a very small ashram. And you read in Durga Mata's book how we all gathered around the Christmas tree and he passed out our presents. I mean, when you picture in your mind how small that must have been, and how intimate that relationship must have been, and just how much it was based on his personality and the joy of being there, you can see how it would be so easy to miss um, what he was really doing, and why he was even there. And also because the power of a master, I mean, Jesus' life is the supreme example of this. The power and impact of a master Is not measured by his his position in the world, his recognition in the world, his accomplishments in the world. You know, if you were told at the end of the life of Christ, as of Jesus, after he was crucified, even after he was resurrected, if you were told that that incarnation would become the defining reality for civilization for centuries and centuries to come, it would be almost incomprehensible. How could you imagine that such an individual who seemingly did nothing you know he didn't write books there wasn't there wasn't much to do he, he left nothing he left nothing tangible at least that has survived to this day as as the um product of his own hands I mean really contemplate that there's no pictures of him I mean people have painted him again and again, but you don't. Necessarily have any paintings that say this was done by a contemporary because he was, it was Kali Yuga descending and everything just, you know, came to pieces after that. Whatever there might have been um, did not survive through the nadir of Kali Yuga. He had a handful of disciples and one of them betrayed him. And the one who betrayed him betrayed him because he couldn't figure out. I mean, it's such a fascinating betrayal, really. The truth of it is so much more interesting than the myths that have been built up around it. Because he was an apostle. He had the consciousness to know who Jesus was. He just could not figure out how Jesus was ever going to get this show on the road the way he was going at it. And the way Master describes it, Judas wanted to back Jesus into a corner and force him to declare his power you know by and he thought if he was arrested and his life was threatened then Jesus's response would be to to show his magnificence which Judas had full faith in that's the ironic part about it but that the the response that Jesus took was so completely unexpected and mind-boggling to Judas that he would surrender to that worldly power and allow that world power that worldly power to have complete mastery over him to the point of death and that's why judas killed himself immediately afterwards because everything had gone so not according to his plan he he just didn't know what to do at that point so he he ended his life what's your question adam um it's in relation to what you said about Judas saying you know that he wanted to get a show on the road it just popped in my mind I was thinking do you mean in the sense that it was prophesized that he would be the king of kings and all these things and that they expected him to sort of have that worldly position and power is that kind of what you mean? that's exactly according this is Yogananda's explanation which is from his own intuition of course the, the, the supporting evidence in the Bible is not sufficient it has to be also his intuition but it's a much more sensible explanation I would also add that that Judas was of a, a wealthier class than many of the disciples he had more of a, a access to the power structure of the time and he just couldn't imagine um he I mean, he, he, he equated power with worldly power the Jews were an oppressed people it had been Uh, predicted that the Messiah would liberate them. So many of the Jews thought that Jesus was going to have a political impact on their lives, that he was going to extricate them from the Romans and would become their king, and they would be a free people again because the Romans had come in and conquered and they had to live under a, a lot of oppression. They lived their own world under that. And so Judas just thought that that's how you make it happen. You get celebrity endorsements. You know, we joke about that in our world because we now that we have a center in Los Angeles, you know, there's always this thought of celebrity endorsements. You know, many spiritual groups have been created by the Beatles or somebody who gets interested in so-and-so. And I've often just laughed. I mean, we just, we never get anywhere. We just never get anywhere that way. It's It's, it's not, doesn't seem to be in God's plan for us to, cross over into the popular culture. You know, even not with one individual. You would think there would be one individual somewhere, but it doesn't happen for us. It might, but it hasn't ever happened so far. But Judas really wanted that. And how could he think, you know, that the death and resurrection of that man would result in what it resulted in? And just looking at history from that point of view... Um, These are are amazing things to contemplate because you realize that whatever Jesus was and whatever he did in that lifetime had to be both of a magnitude and of of a type that is just really completely different than the way that we think. Um, Because it endured and endured and endured. Yogananda said once that when he raises his arms and chants Om, a blessing, you know, goes out everywhere when he does that. And he made that statement that he's planted his thoughts in the ether and they shall not die. Remember when he was talking about communities? This, you know, my thoughts are registered in the ether and they shall not die. You know, that the world will be will be changed by what I declare in this moment. Now, it, it's a very helpful spiritual exercise, and over the years I'll, I'll back up just a moment. When, uh, when we first started Ananda, we were very fortunate in, in the late '60s and early '70s that this we always call him this gentleman because he was a very refined gentleman named Hanel Cassidy came to live there, and Hanel was you know probably a little older than I am now, but he seemed like a really old man at the time. Um, maybe he was a little older than that. But he was, uh, among many other accomplishments in his life, he was a, a world-class organic gardener, the biodynamic method. He, he was really exceedingly knowledgeable. And uh, he, he, uh, Swamiji invited him there just to you know finish his life, have the third ashram of life. And we were trying to start an organic garden and it was obvious to him that we didn't have, we didn't know a rake from a hoe and we were not going to get anywhere. So he took it upon himself to train the gardeners. And in the last years of his life, he got up every day at 7, you know, drove down to the farm at 7 o'clock and expected them to be there, and he trained Ananta and Shivani and a whole bunch of them. But he was an elderly man also, and he had his quirky ways, and Shivani said he used to like to tell stories about his very interesting life, including the fact that he had been the waltz king of New York City. <laughs> I mean, he had, he'd had a very interesting life, <laughs> and he would just go into the best ballrooms and signal the band, and the band would play whatever he wanted but Shivani said uh, he was inclined to tell the same stories over and over again, as elderly people sometimes do. And uh, because she loved him, and because she was a devotee, every time he would tell her a story she'd heard before, she'd just breathe twice and relax and figure, well, there must be something in the story I haven't yet learned. And then she would just listen attentively, and that was the way she would relax and be a good friend to him, because he needed to relive his life. Um, In the course of all these years with Swamiji, you know, there are certain repeating themes that he he offers us over and over again. And of course, one of the ones that he's told us—I'm sure you all have heard it—you know, many times by now—was the garden party um, in July in the summer, and him hearing Master speak. And I've never, I've never in my life heard such a powerful speech. And I vowed at that moment that I would do my utmost to manifest his words. And lately, Swami's been saying of the 800 people there, including all of the disciples living in Mount Washington, I seem to have been the only one who heard him. And I've been thinking about that, even though you you all know how it is that you know something and then you read it again and it's like you never knew it. It just kind of comes into your mind all of a sudden. Oh my goodness, that must be what that means. So I've been thinking lately about Master planting his words in the ether in the context that I'm talking about now. You know, what does that mean? To 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 plant the words in the ether and they shall move the west. And then he even spoke about leaving a blueprint in the ether for the work. SRF uses that to claim that every single decision that they make is based on that blueprint. And Swamiji says, as if it was, you know, point A and then point A sub one and then point A sub one, sub A like this. I had to laugh reading some of the letters that somehow got forwarded to me, SRF explaining about why Krishna was added to the altar. I'm like I, When I read it, I thought, boy, do we have these people on the run? You know, they are, they are just so responding to us. I was very moved in the movie. I'm, I'm digressing. I was very moved. I saw the movie Gandhi on the way over to Dubai, flying to India. 16 hours of flight, a three-and-a-half-hour movie is really your friend. So <laughs> I watched the movie Gandhi again, which I'd wanted to watch for a while. And, and Gandhi was talking about civil disobedience, which, of course, you know, was something he understood perfectly. And they, he had, I, they had the plan. I think it was when they were going to march to the sea and make salt They were going to make salt on the anniversary of the Amritsar um, massacre. I mean, he was a brilliant politician, Gandhi. And then he said something, they said, well, what if the British people don't respond? What if the government doesn't respond? He says, well, we'll just keep escalating until they do. He says, they think they're in charge, but actually we are. Because if we keep going, eventually we will provoke a response. He said, we're in charge of it. And it was actually an interesting realization, and I was thinking when I was reading this thing from SRF, you know, that that Swami's really in charge because he he keeps forcing them to explain themselves, and, you know, they don't want to explain themselves, and so they made up this big description of how, you know, the time wasn't right, but now the time is right, and... Master left secret instructions somewhere for somebody that when the time was right, we would make these changes. And the actual argument was, don't you think we ought to know? We were with him a long time. Don't you think we ought to know? My response to that is, that doesn't work for me. And in in contrast, the way Swamiji teaches us is, well, think about it from your own experience. And then he gives us an example of something that we can relate to. Even when he's just trying to talk about the energy flowing up and down the spine, he says, isn't it true that when you feel positive about things, you lift your head and you breathe in? And isn't it so when you feel depressed that you drop your head and you breathe out? I mean, he's trying to explain the kundalini. But he starts with where we are, so that we never have to take somebody else's word for it. See, it's a very important distinction. So now Swamiji is constantly telling us, often telling us, that master this was the most powerful talk and master planted these words in the ether and said they shall not die so like what does that really mean like who who is this person yogananda who is this incarnation and and what is the world that he lives in that he's moving us toward and because historically we have the picture of jesus in our lives who apparently did nothing and yet did everything that's completely defined our Western civilization ever since. Swamiji remarked that in the 1960s and 70s when all the baby boomers left college and went out to the land, he said, oh, that was master's words taking effect. Uh, yes, autobiography was influencing people, so in fact, it was literally autobiography taking effect, but I don't think many of the people who are out there eating organic vegetables and you know, living barefoot on the land were thinking about Yogananda, but it was his words taking effect. And when you think about that movement, of which, of course, I was a part of that, and some of you were too, I mean, it was just like, all of a sudden, this idea seized a whole generation of very bright, promising young people to just throw it all away and go live out in the country and and make these idealistic communities and just sort of try a complete alternative reality and even to this day, that, those experiences of that generation. And it was all mixed with all sorts of other things. But coming back to Steve Jobs, reading autobiography, you know, every year for 30 years, we can't just take this teaching and, and sanitize it down to our comfortable little practice of Kriya. You know, when, when an avatar comes to shift the whole of society... He's, he means business. He's not just coming to start a little monastery and, you know, help a few. He's come to, to set the whole course of the world's direction for the whole next yuga. I know that sounds very grand, but who else is going to do it? And all of these things are done by, you know, the force of consciousness and and a leading energy in there. It's, it, 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 everything in this world is done by instruments. It's not as if there's just sort of random ideas floating around. Everything always has to be concentrated through some force. And so much more than we realize what goes on in this planet is actually guided from levels that we really can't see. Ideas are universal. Where did the inspiration come from? Why did that whole generation of people... You know, the the man I was married to at that time, he was a 4.0 student at UCLA. He was on his way to the Olympics. He was a shoo-in to be a Rhodes Scholar. And in the spring of his senior year, we just dropped out. We just dropped out. We sold everything. We got in a car and we just drove off. I mean, only decades later did I realize what that did to his parents. <laughs> but at the time... It was just like a self-evidently right thing to do. We just looked at that whole possibility of life and just, why would we do that? And, you know, as and what the part that really strikes me in retrospect is how it never occurred to either one of us that it was a dumb decision or a dangerous decision or anything like that. It was just so correct. And I, I feel... and. We were we were with everybody else. We were with all our peers doing it. You know, the ones who were left in school or left following those paths seemed like the odd bodkins at that time. You know, neither he nor I ever went back. Some did go back. But there was a force. And the reason Swamiji says that Master told us about being William the Conqueror is because Western civilization, the way we live it now, was because of William, and then, interestingly, because of his son Henry. And what William set into place, Henry then uh, filled out and grounded and made practical. And very interestingly, um, the, uh, the 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 uh, the laws of England, which became the laws of America, um, were were done as a result of William and. Henry, and then Time Magazine at one point, I think maybe at the millennia or something, just the most influential man in the last thousand years was William the Conqueror. And you know, those of us who don't study history that much don't necessarily realize that. So you think, why would an avatar have wasted an incarnation? But he just had to set a direction, and then that direction kept flowing. I also found out, I sent this out to some of you, Swamiji as Alfonso the tenth, as the son of Master when he was the Spanish king, that the, there is a picture of Alfonso the tenth in the U.S. House of Representatives, because in the southwestern part of America, the the laws that were followed by the by the Spanish holdings on this continent were the laws that were created by Alfonso the tenth. And that those laws ended up influencing the way America was structured. So in the U.S. House of Representatives, famous lawmakers, there's like 23 on the walls. And one of them is Swami Kriyananda in a previous incarnation when he was acting as, he's acting now as master's instrument to to put into practical form what master himself brought. Now, If that doesn't expand your idea of what's going on in this world, I really don't know what will. When I saw that, I don't, uh, somebody sent it to me. It was just, and then I went and looked and there's a a profile picture of Alfonso which looks almost very, very similar to the profile picture of Swami Kriyananda when he was 18 years old that's in the path. You know, there's a very um, interesting portrait of Swami Kriyananda looking up and it's just a perfect side profile. It looks like a professional picture. And the two resemble each other. What can you say? So this is what we've gotten ourselves into. You know, this is what we've become a part of. We have signed on for something just fascinatingly interesting. And it's, it's very difficult, you know, each one of us as little individuals to sort of see what our part is. But what this asks of us is that we think very big when we start thinking of Master. And we don't try to bring him down to a sort of a comfortable level, but realize that whatever um, little bit that we can see of the, of the edge of his consciousness is really just that. It's like looking into the Milky Way from the edge. You know, you just don't know what's way on the other side of it. And um, we just think for a second. I had a thought there. Swamiji so said something very interesting about Master once. In The Path, he makes the reference to how all-pervasive Master's influence and control was of, of the mission. And he talks about the time when he... about how he would chafe under it as a strong, creative man himself. I mean, not deeply, but a little bit. Um, and he had some ideas about he about how he wanted to... He, he might design the garden, some aspect of Mount Washington. And when he said something to Master about his ideas for the garden, Master very dismissively said, oh, Ananda Mata knows my wish, my wishes for the garden. You know, don't, don't bother me with your ideas. And Swamiji says, he's honest enough to say in his own autobiography, that he sort of chafed under that. Can't I even, you know, express myself just in something as small as the garden? And... Then he goes on to talk about it in a different way, but later when he verbalized and discussed it a little bit, he really described, he said that that he he described Master as a meteor streaking across the sky and that his life, relatively speaking, was rather short and he just came and he had this um, uh, obligation to Babaji. He was sent by Babaji and he was sent by Jesus, or he was sent by Babaji at least, And Babaji and Jesus together have planned the spiritual salvation of this age. They are concerned about the materialistic direction. They are concerned about the technological advances that will allow us to blow ourselves apart if we don't have the moral fiber to use them properly. They're concerned about everything. I mean, just like anybody would be who was looking around with their eyes open and their brain on at any point. You would be concerned about the direction of our society. So, they planned the salvation of the sage. They planned how it's going to work. And Yogananda's incarnation is a really integral and fundamental part of that. It's time to send the message of self realization to the Dwapar Yuga country on the planet. The degree to which America is a Dwapar Yuga country compared to others is there's so many aspects, there's so many implications of everything that Yogananda's life stood for, including the fact that he could have founded this anywhere in the world. He didn't start in India. He didn't start in Europe. He came to America. He came to California. He came to Los Angeles. And all of that was very deliberate because of the necessity to be in the environment in which the seeds would be planted, in which the tree would grow in which the individuals would have the right consciousness and be capable of doing this. You know, the, the nature of America is so in tune with this new age. It's so not a Kali Yuga country. I mean, America's falling to pieces in certain ways right now, but the essential karma and nature of the country is still just exactly the same. We tend to take it for granted because we just live here. But the fact that you can come from anywhere in the world to this country that you can, we have had, we've been losing freedoms rather steadily, but we have been an extremely free country, and that it doesn't make any difference what the form of your life was before you got here. You can just, with your own what? Energy, make it exactly what you, ever, what you want it to be. And no class distinctions, no caste decisions. Other countries just labor under these in- incredibly difficult um, pre-existing expectations and rules and everything that America simply doesn't have. You know, people just show up. You don't ask who's your father, who's your mother, where did you come from, you know, what's your bank account, or, I mean, we do as a joke sometimes, but as a, really as a country, we don't. I, I'm sure you remember that movie, The L.A. Story, when uh, Steve Martin was trying to get a reservation at this very high-class restaurant, and he had to be interviewed several times, and he had to, meet the maitre d' at the bank. And they had to examine his bank account. This was all a joke. And then they asked him what he thought he might order. And he said he was going to order the duck. And then they all chuckled, you know, disparagingly, with your portfolio, you can't afford the duck. <laughs> you know, it, just, it was such an exaggerated story. But, you know, that's not really our country. I mean, you can't afford the duck. But nonetheless... It's all about energy. If you have the energy, you can make it happen. And nothing can hold you back if you have the energy. Now, that is just about the definition of Dwapara, isn't it? I mean, at one point when I was reflecting on this, I said to Swamiji, well, we must have founded America, didn't we? Because America was so essential to the building of, uh, to the coming of self-realization that we must have had something to do with the founding of America, didn't we? And uh, it was funny, we were sort of at a, at a table with a group of my peers and they were sort of asked around because I really felt like I helped found America, that I was really there at the beginning. And it was sort of like, I was surprised that not as many people of my friends as I thought were there. I, I was pretty sure I was there. But then not so long ago, Swamiji was reading or watching some film about the founding of America and the he, he was really struck by the divine reality of it. In the book about John Adams, which I'm sure many of you have read too, it was impossible what America did. You know, to, to set up a revolution against England, to declare themselves independent, it really was impossible. There was no way it could have succeeded. But the, the, the men and the women who were dedicated to making it happen had that feeling, which some of us know that feeling, that they just knew it would work and it just didn't make any difference why it wouldn't work because they knew it would work and they also knew that they were born to do it and they had to do it and so no matter how difficult and impossible it it was also impossible to quit because it had to be done and they were born to do it very, it was it's very very inspiring story actually when you really read through it but you see all of that brought us to the point where there was a United States and there was a California and there was a Los Angeles. And where does where does it start and where does it end? You know, at what, at what point do the, does the force of the masters not play this out? But Swamiji then described that Yogananda was like a meteor moving across the sky and his life was not going to be long and everything had to be set into place. And he, as Swamiji said, he couldn't afford um, I mean, the mission could not allow any lesser consciousness to define any aspect of it. Every single aspect of it had to be defined with his consciousness because once that consciousness is planted in the ether, it's there for all time. Even today, of course, you know, Jesus, Krishna, Buddha, they're accessible to anyone who's in tune with them. Their vibrations exist in eternity and you can draw them and that you can get them to manifest in front of you, even with if your devotion is strong enough. And so Master had to set in motion everything that we hardly even know what it's going to be because it will be future generations responding to creative ideas that they won't even know where they came from. They won't know. I certainly didn't know in the 60s and the 70s, and not many people around me I never even thought about it till Swami said it. Oh yes, that was a response to Master putting those thoughts in the ether because thoughts are not, you know, not individual but universal. And so we've stepped into this stream of Master moving us forward and everything that we do in every aspect of our lives can be a contributing um, ray of energy to that extraordinary mission And then Swamiji describes that by the time it got to him, he's been able to disperse the responsibility a little bit more. He still holds an enormous amount of it in his own hands. But because Master has planted it so powerfully, Swamiji hasn't had to hold it quite as strongly. Plus, it's been appropriate because his role primarily is starting communities, and you can't start communities without giving people, you know, the community the people in it own it. And so they have to be able also to influence it. It's not a monastery. It's not where it's an ashram with the guru in charge and everybody just accepts the guru's will. The people have to own it. And so therefore, Swamiji has had to disperse responsibility. Also, it's the next sort of stage. But at the same time, and I was talking about this both when I was in India and again when I came back here, um, I was asked... What will happen when Swamiji dies? And it's a question everybody asks, especially now, because, you know, Swami could leave his body at any point. He says he's not going to, but for a few more years, but, you know, the number he gives us is when he's 91 and he's about to be 86. And we all know how time just goes like that. So, not very far from now, his physical incarnation will be ended. What will that mean to us? And I don't know if this is true or not, but I had, when I was really thinking about this seriously one day, because I want to be emotionally and spiritually and mentally ready for it, because it's you know it, it's a big change for, for a lot of us. Not for everyone, but for some of us it's a really big change. But the intuition I had was, oh, when he leaves his physical body, then a great deal of the power and focus and creativity of this work will be released rather than lost or 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 disappearing it'll be released into the atmosphere and i think many many people will pick it up because as long as he's here it's appropriate and necessary for him to remain the concentrated the primary concentrated channel for that energy. And it's not a question of of what he actually does or does himself or does or does not allow. It's a much different reality than that. It's it's whatever it is, which I I can't perceive, so therefore I can't explain. But whatever it is that allowed Jesus to transform all of civilization, even though we don't have a scrap of his handwriting or anything, or a picture of him, or a poem, or nothing. We have nothing from him. And yet, he, the force of his incarnation has defined our lives, defined our culture. And and, and St. Paul. Now, some people have asserted that St. Paul's role in the life of Christ is so similar to Swamiji's that maybe Swami was St. Paul. He never accepts that. He's not. He doesn't feel in tune with St. Paul. But the parallels are astonishing in the sense that Jesus, Jesus set the consciousness, but Paul was the one who actually created Christianity, when you know Christian history. Whether or not Paul and Swami were actually the same soul, which it's, it's just a, a question that lingers. Swamiji says two things. I would think that Paul would be, have been liberated by now. That's one thing he says. The second thing is, I never really liked the man all that much. <laughs> I don't feel in tune with his personality. But um, it's interesting that the role exists. And in many of the masters, such a role exists. You know that Vivekananda did this for Ramakrishna. There was a primary individual in Buddhism. You know, the master himself sets the consciousness and then a disciple sets the form. You know, puts it, puts it down in some way or another. So, um, let me just find where I was. Hold on. So I was talking about Swamiji holding that concentrated force. But I was also contemplating just this evening, thinking about this. Swamiji lived with Master for three and a half years. Swamiji was 22 when he went to Master. And he was less than 26 when Master died. I mean, think about how early that is in your life. And yet during those less than four years... Swamiji comprehended master's intention. He understood where Master was going and what he was trying to do. Now, not at the mature level that he gradually came to later, and he had his years in SRF and all of that to go through. But he, he always knew that master had come, you know, for something completely other. And that's what Swamiji's trying to tell us with this book. You know, he's he's trying to really tell us um, that this this man came to transform society, and he's you know it's a few well chosen stories, a few teachings, a few ideas. It's not a very thick book, really, but he's really trying to get us to understand um, the meteor and the implications of that incarnation. Okay, let's take a short break. I was asked two questions during the break that I wanted to answer um, here. The first one was, was there any, uh, because I was talking about the passing of Swami Kriyananda, has there been any concern that Ananda would fracture internally after Swami's passing? Um, Because the history of religion is littered with the original church of so-and-so followed by the first reformed church of so-and-so followed by the second reformed church of so-and-so back to the original Reformed Church of so-and-so, um, one is uneasy about such things. However, almost all of history that we have is based on Kali Yuga experiences and Kali Yuga structures, whereas we don't have any idea what history Dwapara Yuga Rising looks like. The theory of history Dwapara Yuga Rising is that it's about energy and vibrations and that the forms of things will not become such a, uh, such a focal point of argument and that, that there will be the possibility of people simply working with consciousness. I actually asked Swamiji once, because he was doing a various number of things at that point, organizing Ananda in such a way in the hope of keeping it together. And he commented, I would, I would be very sad if, if, if it fragmented after my passing. And I, not having a very clear grasp of a lot of things, <laughs> said, what difference would it make? His answer, he's so good. He, he gives it such good answers. He said, well, for one thing, it will be much better for the individuals involved because if every individual entity just becomes its own thing, then, then everybody's trapped within those entities. And they, they themselves lose the mobility to move from place to place. And even for the leaders, he said, if it ceases to be spiritually beneficial to you but you have no, no other context except your own small creation... He said, you yourself could be trapped in it. Whereas if we're part of a greater whole, then everybody has the capacity to do what they need to do without it beginning to own you. It was a very, it was an extremely interesting answer. And, that, and then the other side of it is that you just have much more, um, you just have many more options, much more possibilities. The only thing I can say is Swamiji has done everything possible organizationally, spiritually, personally, uh, both by setting the example, making his wishes clear, by training individuals, by um, setting things up in principle, by the way he's organized it, by the way he's structured everything, to to keep it both vibrant and intact as much as is humanly possible. Um, The other factor is, quite simply, I think that spiritually speaking, we're well-trained and we're well-trained to be focused on that which matters. And the other thing is we have absolutely been steeped in the SRF Ananda controversy and we know the road that we don't want to go down. And I think all of those things certainly will give us the best possible chance of harmony, unity, creativity... And in, in enduring vitality. Not merely enduring, but enduring as, a vital, as vitality. Nothing in this world lasts. But my hope is that Ananda will become obsolete um, by the expansion of the age <laughs> rather than uh, make itself irrelevant by the contraction of its own consciousness. And that just depends a lot on everybody sitting in this room and hearing this recording, it's like when I talk to people who are essentially at the beginning of their journey, um, at the place that I started, they're starting. I mean, I'm always saying to them, I'm extremely interested as to what's going to happen next because what we have done with this was revolutionary when we did it. So what's going to happen next? You know, where's the next aspect of this revolution going to come from? What's it going to look like how, how can it be creatively expressed and still be in tune? Because it's, it managed to be creatively expressed and still be in tune by the presence of Swamiji, but you know that doesn't mean that his physical presence is required to keep it there. So, Om, we'll see. Yeah? We're not the Catholic Church, are we? No, we're not the Catholic Church. We have never claimed to be the Catholic Church. We are so many not Kali Yuga things that the chances are good um, but nothing is certain in this world. Um, that, that doesn't. And then the other question was: What did Master mean by the great uh, this being a, a special dispensation? What was the rest of the context of that question? Um, how did, just what did that mean? Uh. I, I was curious. Uh, the the deeper significance if there's a sort of more subtle type of far-reaching right. scope, maybe perhaps in the context of the history of, of the earth and humans and right. a greater thing go, going on. Well, certainly in, in remembered spiritual history, there is no example of a movement being started by five avatars. Generally speaking, the avatar appears by himself. You know, Buddha, Rama, Krishna. I mean, he has many great disciples with him, but multiple avatars is very unusual. Multiple avatars presented as a line of gurus. It's, a very, it's very unusual in itself to have five masters um, essentially be the founding energy. And, and you really do have that sequence coming down from Babaji and Jesus together, you know, and as it sort of pulsed like a tide coming in, and then you have that master's own statement which swamiji in yogananda for the world has one of the it, it, i don't know how much you've read of the book yogananda for the world but you should go to the internet if you haven't and just at least read the chapter called Is yogananda the last in the line of gurus and i i hope as of you know february 14th 2011 the internet, has the latest version because Swami added to that chapter and it's extremely interesting. And he, because Master made the statement that he was the last in the line of gurus. And um, uh, SRF, in its churchianity sort of way, it has tried to make that seem like no one else could ever, um, well, let me, let me phrase it more clearly. I mean, I don't want to recite the whole chapter, but... He could be the last in the line of the founding gurus, but he can't possibly be the last guru in self-realization, because that would mean that no one else would become self-realized. Because one of the things that Master said was that in order to become liberated, you have to liberate six six others, or at least Swami says he thinks the number is six. We always joke about it a lot, you know, you meet somebody on the street and... They're not a person that you really want to associate and you always say, Oh, but he might be one of your six, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or someone new comes to the temple who looks a little bit like they might be difficult to deal with and the light bearers will will sort of, you know, parley back and forth as to whether whether my six is really filled up or not, and whether or not <laughs> But going off of those very serious statements of Master, and then Master saying to Swamiji when Sister Gyanamata was liberated, I was, my Master said that. Sister Gyanamata was completely free. But Swami said, but I thought you had to have disciples. And Master said, oh, she had disciples. So there was Master living at Mount Washington, completely in charge of Mount Washington, and Sister Gyanamata had disciples. So then Swamiji talks in a fascinating way in this chapter, so I'm just going to let you go look for it, about how that really works, how the avatar's power is passed through. And Master, Swami points out that every great saint virtually was is the disciple of, of an avatar and their power is not their own power it's their power is amplified because they are an instrument for the avatar and swami um, literally the avatar lives through them so they the disciple becomes the living connection with the master padre pio st francis mother teresa of calcutta you know obvious examples um Vivekananda swami kriyananda for paramhansa yogananda he he's the avatar is the power but the disciple is the living expression of that and so the special dispensation that master said he was bringing is the beginning of the expression of it is the fact that you have this line of masters each of which has a slightly different vibration a little bit of a different example. Plus, you know, each of these are individual jivas. They're, they're jivas. They're, they're, soul, they're self-liberated souls. They're self-realized souls who exist as a vibration in the ether, each one of which can be drawn in. I'm I'm so interested when I was reading in Durga Mata's book about Rajasi, And, you know, he would have a vision of master, of a Sri Teshwar, He would have a vision of Babaji. He he was a disciple of Master, and he would also have visions of Master after Master passed. But he would also see these other Masters. They were all participating. Now we were just talking about the power of Jesus and how he, his his consciousness alone, had such a transforming effect. Where do we begin to think? I don't even know how to begin to think about it when you think about all the uh, when you imagine all that concentrated energy. And that's why Master said this is a special dispensation. This is a shifting from Kali Yuga into Dwapara Yuga. This is a very um, dicey time on the planet. You know, these are these are times when an enormous amount of force, both for good and for evil, is really gathered. And um, e- every prophecy and any little tiny bit of common sense just really says that, you know, that there's just this huge conflict between the the uplifting power of good and the downward-pulling forces, who, who can begin to understand why the planet is the way it is? I mean, people, like yesterday at, or Sunday, on Sunday service, I was talking about Anandamui ma just never talking about expanded consciousness without also talking about God. Because if you really just try to sort of sort it out on the basis of the good people and the bad people. And the bad people are really good people if we just love them enough. I remember when uh, the World Trade Center was, you know, blown to bits and destroyed as it was, and all those people were annihilated. And I mean, it was just a horrible thing to have done. Um, I, I Just horrible. Um, And people were saying things, oh, well, you know, we really can't speak ill of the terrorists. We just have to love them. And Swami wrote a letter, um, and it was published around to a certain extent. He said, if there's a mad dog, you have to shoot it. You can't love it into being nice. He said, some people are committed to evil and you have to respond to them appropriately. I mean, you know, it was a very strong letter. He said, don't be naive. There's real forces that are at play here. And, and when you don't have God and you just want it to work according to your own egoic idea of what would be nice, you just make up these foolish things. Like, like, like there is no such thing as the presence of evil. There is such a thing as the presence of evil. And for some peculiar reason, right now we're, we're in such a strange time where there's so much good and there's so much evil simultaneously and all of the communication and unification of the world is able to bring to everyone's awareness you know this extraordinary uh, darkness that just exists in so many places and you know every day you turn around and you see a new example of it the the lost boys of sudan you know this uh, amazing overwhelming experience of these thousands of young men whose families have been annihilated by these Terrible people who just wanted their land, and you know the boys, soldiers, and just one thing after another, I don't have to tell you, you all know, people you know rape, death, dying, murder, left and right, we're still just living our pleasant lives here, but it's happening all over the place and and those dissonant vibrations, and the fact that God has allowed all those demons to share this space. There's just something trying to happen here. And the masters are on one side of it and the forces of darkness are on the other. And this is a special dispensation seemingly because a special dispensation is needed to to pull us through this um, and allow all those negative forces their turn. I mean, it's just like darkness has to have a turn too. When Swamiji was... Um, very distressed in the middle of our um, legal, of our lawsuit issues, by the absolute adharma of the people who are opposing, opposing us. Um, our lawyer has written a book. It's the third, I would call, in the trilogy of, about this. He's written a book, John Parsons, who defended us for all those 12 years. Um, he's a, He's a very good writer. He's a very good man. And he's written just a book about all those lawsuits from a lawyer's point of view, a lawyer's personal story. It's really, it's a marvelous book. It's coming out in a few months. Um, Let's see now. Uh, Just a second. I lost the train of thought. Let me find it again. Uh, Oh, yes. Um, The man who, who, who stood against us, whose name I prefer not to say, even though it's in the book, I just prefer never even to dignify it by saying it. He just lied to us that pretty much the first day he came into our lives, he started lying, and he never stopped lying. The legal system is not set up for lawyers to lie. The, um, possi- the enforcement process is extremely cumbersome, especially lawyer to lawyer. And once a lawyer figures that out, you know, I mean, li- lawyers lying has been, it, Abraham Lincoln referred to it a lot. I mean, it happens. But they were just so undharmic. And Swamiji just sort of one day became very distressed inwardly and he was distressed with Master. He said it would be one thing to destroy me but to use such undharmic methods. How can you let these undharmic people have power over me? You know, it, he just was really quite seriously disturbed and he just went into a very, he, he withdrew very strongly for about 12 hours. I, well, he was in our house at the time. He, I walked into his bedroom thinking he wasn't in there and he was actually just sitting in the dark staring at the wall. I mean, he was really seriously caught. And then he said he prayed. I guess, actually, it was later that he prayed. It was a slightly... I have the i have the incidents confused because what I'm about to say happened when he was in Hawaii. But he prayed to Babaji. Why are you letting this happen? And Babaji's response was, they are all my children. And that's really quite something to think about. Because, uh... The masters are self-realized souls. They're, they're people like us, which is to say they started with very low consciousness and they walked through. Over many, many incarnations, they walked through the whole thing to the end. So when they look at a very undharmic person, when they look at a very evil person, when they look at a violent, terrible person, when they look at the victim of all that violence, they have been there. It's just almost impossible to imagine, and then they have understood that the light is still present and can come out of there. So we imagine, and even Swamiji says, if a mad dog threatens your village, you have to shoot the mad dog. There's no other way around it. You can't just allow that to happen. You have an obli- you have an, an obligation, at least to entrap it. You know, I'm not saying he's advocating the death penalty. But you cannot let it run wild. You have to stop it. You have to stand up to it. So it may be perfectly appropriate to cage that mad mad dog and keep it in prison so it can't hurt anyone. But it doesn't make it any less a child of God or less loved by Babaji. It's quite something, isn't it? So the, the idea that you could sort out this world just with pleasant ego you know? And just sort of, if we were just nicer to those ter- terrorists and help them with their self-esteem, that it would just solve itself. You know, it's just like, it's naive in the extreme. And it's it's suggested by people who've had no actual experience of that. Because once you have actual experience, <laughs> I thank that lawyer, I I understood evil. I've never been with someone who was just mean for the joy of being mean. Swami just said he's the closest thing to the personification of evil that we are likely to meet in our lifetime. I mean, people were imprisoned by Nazis, their own next-door neighbors in Rwanda. um, You know, neighbors picked up machetes and cut to pieces the people they'd lived their whole lives with. You know, there's there's something very real that can happen. And for some reason, our planet is a place where a great deal of that is happening, whether it will happen to us personally, whether it will happen in this country, I don't know but it's happening on the planet. And therefore, a powerful force is required in order, because see, it's the whole end of Kali Yuga. It's the whole end of everything that Kali Yuga re- represented and personified, exemplified, and the beginning of an entirely new way of thinking about everything. I mean, Ananda itself is an entirely new way of thinking about everything. And just to touch back, when Swamiji was with Master for less than four years, from the age of 22 to 26, he understood that Master came to teach us an entirely new way to relate to everything. And that's why he's written so many books. Swamiji has touched every area of life, creative art, psychology, money, child raising, marriage, You know, my mind stops for a minute, but you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. Every single area of life, here's the Kriya Yoga approach to it. And you know, you mentioned Kriya Yoga as the dispensation, which in many ways it is because it puts the capacity, it puts spiritual responsibility for yourself in your own hands with absolutely no, nothing, that is required to intercede for you. Now, attunement to the guru is between you and God. But think about that. There's no church, there's no ritual, there's no required adherence to this law, to that law, there's no priest, there's nothing. You will have your breath and your spine. Nothing. That alone. And and it's it's available to anybody who puts out even a little bit of effort to get it. You can't just buy it in the drugstore But you have to, you know, you have to put out just the tiniest bit of effort. Babaji said to Lahiri, give this technique only to those who are willing to renounce everything. Oh, Lahiri said, so many people need it who can't do that. Okay, Babaji said, the divine has spoken through you. Give it to anyone who sincerely asks. Wow, was that ever a change? So look at all of us, you know, we can go to Starbucks and then do our Kriyas. (laughs) You know, we can drive our fancy cars and go to our nice homes and have our families and our children, and then do our kriyas. And we can just do our kriyas anywhere. Nobody has to... We have to learn it from somebody who knows it. We have to learn it from somebody who knows it. That's what he said in the autobiography. They now say you have to learn it from an authorized SRF person, which is such a sin against what Yogananda said. Yogananda said you have to learn kriya from somebody who knows it. I mean, look at the huge difference. One requires this external intermediary but you have to go this way through these people. The other says you have to learn Kriya from somebody who knows it. And, and you have all of those realities. Plus, in addition, because of Swamiji's work, especially, although it was there in Masters, but not enough, you can, have, you can take any area of your life and make it your sadhana because you know how, you know how to apply Kriya to it. So you don't have to just think. Oh well, I just do my kriyas and then I go out and make money. And money is different. I raise my children, and it's different. I fall in love, and it's different. No, no, no. Every piece of it. And our job, in talking about the next generation, is to just keep going. You know, what, what what's the next and the next and the next, and how can we manifest it? And how can we make it more? And how can we do more with it? That's the special dispensation. Is the power of the gurus, the, the practice of kriya, as you articulated. And then the practical application of that to every single area of life and the opportunity to just expand in every direction. You know, I believe that the iPad was probably one of Master's really good ideas that he got through, you know, Steve Jobs, or at least he had a part in it. Or if nothing else, they rejoiced in it. Well done, you know. Because because think how that technology is advancing the cause of Dwapara Yuga. Uniting the world technologically is one of the ways that evil is being defeated because um, totalitarianism requires secrecy. And once you have access to communication, how did we, how have we taken SRF down? I mean, they they were able to keep everything secret and we put it out on the internet. What's, What's made impossible for SRF to hold their position is the fact that you can go on the internet and you can find all the original words. You know, you can just find it there, and once you can find it there, nobody has power over you anymore. So it would be very much in the interest of the masters to create all of the, the, these things, because it all serves to bring the power of good up. What I realized once, when I was somewhere on the uh, out, you know, thousands of miles from America, and I was subjected to the absolute worst of American culture in some otherwise very idyllic place. It might have been being tortured by some awful American popular music. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, right now this really terrible stuff is being exported around the world. But the channels are open <laughs> to unite the world that any idea can go global now in just a minute. And right now the the vibration is so low that most of what's being exported is terrible. But um, also... Everything that's good can also be exported around the world. So when it shifts, that power is all in place to happen. Okay? Is there anything else? If not, we'll call it a night. And I didn't expect to get to this chapter tonight. I was going to say all the things I said, and I did say them. So I wasn't like completely out of control. (laughs) So here's chapter 17, if you want to, it's not all of it. There's 32 points, and I went arbitrarily up to about 15 and didn't quite finish it because I knew that's all you'd need before you had your books. And next week we'll start right in on this. Yes. Okay. Thank you all very much. God bless you.